Thank you, Hannah. And good morning, everybody. Um, Paul can be hard to understand. Uh, the Bible itself admits that. Peter, in his second letter, says his, letter, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. However, Paul himself reassures us with these words, we do not write anything to you that you cannot read or understand. Paul is, paradoxically, both easy to understand and easy to misunderstand at the same time. And for a second week in a row, we have read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we are trying together, trying to understand what Paul has to say about marriage and sexuality. Last week, I aimed to demonstrate that Paul is trying to change our thinking in the church in Corinth, change their thinking on these subjects, not simply by telling them the right answers, but indeed by trying to get them to think differently, actually, about everything. And having changed some foundational understandings and attitudes, reboot them with updated software. Godly thinking about sex and marriage. And in summary, we found out last week that Paul was essentially confronting a temptation in chapter 7. A common temptation, the temptation to believe that you cannot serve God until you're someone else. And that temptation is often closely knit together with the desire to live an unlimited life, a delimited life. But when we live within limits, those limits that God has set for us, with our heavenly future firmly in mind, for we are God's future people now, we'll make decisions, we'll make good decisions about how to live. Uh, Verse 1 of our text this morning begins with a quotation that might be a statement or it might be a question. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Or it could be, now for the matters you wrote about, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And with respect to that, whether it's a question or a statement, Paul neither affirms nor contradicts. It's not yes or no. But his response actually tells us a lot about what the Corinthians themselves had in mind. For it seems that, for at least some of them, at least some of them, there was the belief that celibacy was superior to the sexual life. That being asexual, like the angels in heaven, perhaps, would undoubtedly be the superior spiritual existence. It might be that some amongst us also feel that way, that we might share that ideal. Oh, if only I didn't struggle so much with lust, then I'd really be able to serve God and really please him then. 
On the other hand, it might actually surprise us to imagine that there was any such view in that church in Corinth. I mean, after all, back in chapters 5 and 6, we found out some stuff about them that gave us the impression that they were some kind of hip, swinging, anything-goes type of church. Could the church in Corinth actually house both attitudes? Permissive licentiousness and prim and proper prudishness Both attitudes at the same time? Well, actually, yes, and easily. Uh, This year we've already had the occasion to talk about the worldview of the first century, the Roman Empire, how they thought back then, a worldview based upon ancient Greek philosophy and literature. And we've already talked about how uh, the Greek, or if you like, Gentile mindset of that time, it divided life, it divided existence, it divided everything into two spheres. The spiritual sphere and the material sphere. And the spiritual sphere, which included the world of ideas and abstract thought and intellectual endeavor, that was pure and superior. But the matter world, the material world, in contrast, the world that also included manual labor and bodies and food and illness and disease, that was inherently inferior, debased and debasing, profane. That fundamental dualism of understanding reality, that fundamental mindset gave rise to two ways of thinking, two views with respect to our basic physical appetites. One attitude was highly permissive. So then, for example, the the Cyrenaics, they were libertines, hedonists, who taught that the only intrinsic value in life was pleasure. Physical appetites are simply that, no more or no less. If you have an itch, scratch it. If you're hungry, have something to eat. If you need to see a prostitute, see a prostitute. Radical acceptance, if you like. Radical acceptance of whatever your physical appetites are telling you to do. I have the right to do anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, as the Corinthians themselves said. Why overthink it? As we might say. Radical acceptance, radical permissiveness. The polar opposite was the attitude of the ascetic Physical appetites, our desires, our need for food, drink, sexual pleasure, etc., they must be suppressed. Now, asceticism is the idea, asceticism is the idea that physical appetites must be mastered and controlled through rigorous self-denial and self-discipline, through the radical rejection of any form of self-indulgence. And that word, asceticism, comes from the Greek verb, askio, meaning to train or exercise. Our desires must be tamed, like a lion in a circus ring. Yeah, get back, etc. Thus, the Stoics, who wanted to be stoic about everything, to control their emotions through suppression, the Platonists, who aimed to control every bodily desire so that the soul might be set free in the search for wisdom. And the Spartans, who gave themselves over to austerity in order to pursue military perfection. It is only natural, it's only obvious then, really, that there'd be Christians in the church in Corinth who couldn't reconcile 
their sexuality with their newfound spirituality, their identity in Christ, and who assumed that following Jesus would only be possible if they radically denied their sexual nature. Radical rejection of physical appetites. Well, what does Paul have to say? Well, just for some variety, here's a more rigidly literal translation from the Greek, beginning at verse 2. Paul says, But because of sexual immorality, each man must have to himself a wife, and each woman to herself must have a husband. To the wife, a husband must pay the rights, and likewise also a wife to the husband. To the wife over her own body does not have the authority, but rather the husband does. And likewise, also the husband over his own body does not have the authority, but rather the wife. Do not defraud one another, except perchance by agreement for a season, in order that you might be at leisure to pray, and that you might be together again, in order that Satan might not tempt you because of your non-self-control. Well, a number of points can be made directly in response to that text. Firstly, Paul understands that marriage is normal. It is overwhelmingly the norm with respect to adult human beings. Adults should have a spouse. Second, although Paul is against sex before marriage or sex outside of marriage... Paul is for sex in marriage. And in these two things, Paul is depending upon Genesis chapter 2. God made marriage, and God made sex, and sexuality, and gender. These things, therefore, are inherently good, even if there are limitations attached to their application and expression. Third, Paul is, therefore, against abstinence in marriage. It is not good to not have sex, except perchance by mutual agreement and for a limited time and for the purpose of prayer. Paul, along with the Old Testament, sees opportunity for sexual intercourse to be a marital right. A husband is right to expect and enjoy sex with his wife. A wife is right to expect and enjoy sex with her husband. To be denied is to be defrauded. And so Paul implicitly rebukes the husband or the wife who unilaterally decides to withhold sex from their partner. Fourth, please notice that there is no mention of children. Until very recently, to withhold sex from someone also meant to deny that person children to deny them descendants, in a sense to deny them a future, a scandal across all the ages. But Paul doesn't mention children. By using words such as sexual immorality and self-control, we see that actually his concern is something other than procreation. Paul knows that most, not all, but most human beings have an appetite for sexual intimacy and pleasure, and that marriage is the legitimate place for the satisfaction of these appetites, whether or not children result. Fifth, self-control. 
human beings are limited creatures and self-control is a limited commodity. In our own age, psychologists have discovered that tired people have less self-control than well-rested people, and that exercising self-control is in itself exceedingly tiring. I think we should note Paul's realism here, that even the best of us cannot have infinite self-control. And we aim to live wisely with that recognition, neither assuming ourselves nor our spouses to be superheroes of self-control. Six, please note finally the absolute, absolute symmetry and equality in Paul's statement. Everything that is stated about husbands is equally and symmetrically stated about wives, and everything that is stated about wives is equally and symmetrically stated about husbands. This is an extraordinary statement of equality in marriage. Paul didn't get this from his own rabbinic training. He didn't get this preparing for a career as a Pharisee. Every worldview back then, Jewish or Gentile, all of the available worldviews were patriarchal. And in patriarchal societies, by definition, the interests and needs of men are given priority. This is staggeringly anachronistic. Uh, I mean, if I didn't believe in God, I would consider this evidence of proof of the existence of time machines or UFOs. It's astonishingly at odds with his culture but not at odds with the Bible. A number of points must be made um, in reply to the text as we reply to it. First and foremost, it will be painfully obvious to us, especially in this age in which we live, that this text could be misused and abused so as to justify abusive conduct. As Peter said in his writings about Paul's writings, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. The husband or wife who attempted to use this text to force their own will on their spouse would indeed be doing something awful, something quite opposite to Paul's intention. As is abundantly clear from any number of texts in the New Testament, including Paul's own words about marriage in Ephesians, Love is the submission of our will to the submission, in submission to the will of another. The loving husband puts his wife's will or wishes above his own. The loving wife puts her husband's will or desires above her own. A second point follows on from this. Paul is not a sex therapist but rather he is a theologian. It's a really important distinction. As a theological text, this is preclinical in its application, and as a preclinical text, it's vital. But its clinical use is limited. The text is no answer to the common problem of desire differential because it's not intended to be an answer to the problem of desire differential. Back in 2018, um, we did a series of sermons on marriage and relationships, and we thought at that time, in some length, 
about desire differential, a common marital problem. We thought about how libido works and what it is. It's our natural sexual attraction to others. It's our desire for sexual pleasure and orgasm. And it's our need for closeness and intimacy. We thought about how libido as a thing, how it varies enormously both within and between individuals. And the upshot of this variability is that naturally there will be a mismatch between husband and wife with respect to desire for sex, with respect to the, the, the frequency desired, a mismatch that, if it's prolonged enough and significant enough, may create problems. And this is a common thing. It is very common. It's actually a problem occurring in most couples sooner or later. And I understand that in about 60% of cases, it is the husband who feels defrauded. And in about 40% of cases, it is the wife who feels defrauded. They're not getting enough. And indeed, in a marriage that lasts many, many decades, it's not inconceivable that the problem might flip. That at one stage, it's the husband who feels defrauded. At another stage, it's the wife. That's, that's not uncommon. Well, desire differential is a serious problem within marriages, mostly because actually left to our own devices, the intuitive and hardwired responses of both men and women to such a situation tends to be counterproductive. We make matters worse when our instincts kick in. Worse, not better. What's actually needed is to move in the opposing spirit. Self-limiting as a meaningful sacrifice, as an act of love for another, is always a beautiful and powerful thing. So then, if there are any husbands or wives out there who feel defrauded by their spouses, that they are dissatisfied with the frequency of sexual intercourse in their marriage, this isn't the text to show them. However, for couples who recognize that they might have a problem, this text could be useful in certain ways, and I'll now attempt to show how. The ancient Greek worldview, with its various philosophical schools, it has continued to be enormously influential on Western thinking right up until today it actually still controls much of your thinking and my thinking. I spoke earlier about asceticism, uh, the practice of severe self-denial and the avoidance of all forms of self-indulgence. And actually, it's very, very easy to read the Bible with those glasses on, reading it ascetically, particularly the New Testament. John the Baptist comes dressed in camel hair garments, eating locusts and wild honey. Jesus began his ministry with 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. And he said, whoever wants to be my, my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Paul says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live and later on, from this same letter to the Corinthian church, I, Paul says, I punish my body 
and enslave it so that after proclaiming to others the gospel, I should not myself disqualify. Well, it's incredibly easy to read the New Testament from the point of view of asceticism and to think that the, the road to higher spirituality must be through radical, radical denial of all physical appetites and pleasures, the radical denial of any this-worldly desires. And indeed, that's the route that many Christian thinkers took for centuries after Jesus. As, as you may know, Roman Catholicism still holds to celibacy for clergy, priests, nuns, and monks. It allows sex within marriage, but only for procreative purposes. And these things are because Roman Catholicism understands all sexual desire to be lust. All sexualized thinking to be sin. The leadership of the church, therefore, are supposed inherently to be asexual. Now, we know how they got there, but we also know that they're not listening to Holy Scripture. It's a temptation. In order to serve Jesus, I have to be somebody different. In order to serve Jesus, I, I, I have to do something else. Well, we know that they are mistaken, but we'd be foolish not to be sympathetic. For very, very few of us are completely without some kind of baggage when it comes to our sexuality. Shame, guilt, embarrassment, fear, hurt, pain, rejection, etc., etc. The Bible's position on physical appetites is neither of the two Greek positions I've outlined. The Bible is not wanting to make us either ascetics or libertines. It's neither radical acceptance nor radical rejection, but rather radical surrender. Our physical appetites are from God and good, and generally speaking, simply cannot be ignored indefinitely. But they are also fallen, which means that they are wrong-headed guides, forces at work in our lives that, if we accept them uncritically, will lead us to destruction. And that's because, according to our fallen nature, we seek to satisfy our desires and ambitions selfishly, not in surrender to others, not in surrender to God, but selfishly, self-centeredly using others. The New Testament then teaches us to surrender ourselves into Christ's hands, who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Surrendering ourselves to Jesus, we ask for his help, not, not indeed to suddenly be a different person, not to suddenly become asexual, but rather that our sexuality might be redeemed, that we might surrender our whole bodies to God for his glory, that we also might surrender our whole bodies to our spouse for their delight, taking every thought captive and surrendered to Christ and putting to death 
everything that we know isn't pleasing to Jesus. This text from 1 Corinthians is one of several that help us to see that contra the Corinthians, contra the Roman Catholics, God our Father actually is in favour of sex in marriage. Sex for sex's sake. Therefore, we too can be in favour of sex in marriage. We don't need to feel guilty or sinful or ashamed. Today, scientists who study these things know that about 1% of the population have no libido. None whatsoever. They are not sexually attracted to anybody at all. Nor do they have any interest in sex nor desire for sexual pleasure. Zero libido in about 1% of the population. Dr. Sheldon Cooper, in the fictional sitcom The Big Bang Theory, just mentioning his name always gets a laugh, (laughs) Dr. Sheldon Cooper is accurately depicted as precisely one such person. He has no interest in coitus, as he puts it. And in fact, he finds the idea of being touched by anybody very confronting, indeed repulsive. Nevertheless, somehow, eventually, he marries, which is not unrealistic. But 1%, when you think about it, is a high proportion. One person in 100. That's, that's actually quite a lot. I've had friends over the years who, likewise, I know that they, have, that they had no interest whatsoever in such things. Some of them, unlike Dr. Sheldon Cooper, were very social and had great social skills and many friends Yet, they just weren't interested in the idea of coupling up. It is possible that Paul was one such person. He says this, verse 7, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. And through the rest of the chapter, he advises people, wherever possible, to stay single if they can. Verse 8. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Verse 26. I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. Verse 36, if anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, He who marries the virgin does right. But he who does not marry does even better. A a woman is bound to her husband as, as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she's happy if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Paul is emphatic. The person who marries does not sin. 
Paul uses his own language to affirm the acceptability of having a libido. It's okay to have a libido in the first place, and it's also okay for that to be a deciding factor. Those who are cut out for marriage should not be ashamed of not being cut out for singleness, nor vice versa. But Paul is even more emphatic. If you're not married, it's a better choice to remain unmarried if you can feel that you can manage it. Any decision based upon where we are going, our future heavenly reality revealed in Christ, any decision figured that way is a sound decision. And indeed, in the future, we will not be married to one another. We will indeed be like the angels in heaven. Single Christians, single adult Christians at a pragmatic level, have only themselves to consider and consult in deciding how they will glorify Jesus. In contrast, married Christians must attend to their spouse's wishes and desires, and these are confining and limiting. All relationships are limiting. The more precious the relationship, the more limiting it is. This is perhaps little consolation for single adult Christians who yearn to be married but haven't yet found the right person. A situation, in fairness to Paul, that's not directly considered in this text. However, it must surely be of some consolation to know that here in this text today, Paul has, firstly, validated your desire to be married. Whilst also, secondly, told you that you are in a very good place. By the wisdom of God, to serve Jesus Christ today whilst you wait for your prayers to be answered. Singleness, a very good place to be in today, even if we don't want to stay there indefinitely. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul neither affirms nor contradicts this statement. It's not a matter of simply yes or no. Just as the Corinthian who says, I have the right to do anything, was saying something right for all the wrong reasons, so too the Corinthian Christian who says it is better not to have sex was very likely saying the right thing for thoroughly wrong reasons. Thinking biblically about sex and marriage is actually quite a hard thing to do. But hopefully, as we read and reread Paul, we'll find that he has not written anything that we cannot read or understand. And the Lord be with you.